Listen as Drs. Stephen Pipe from the University of Michigan and Nigel Key from the UNC School of Medicine discuss hemophilia gene therapy in patients with a history of inhibitors. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.ist.org for more information. Hello, this is Steve Pipe from the University of Michigan. I'm uh, talking today with Dr. Nigel Key from uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Nigel, one of the things that's been apparent from the clinical trials for AV-based gene therapy for hemophilia to date is that even patients who've had a historical inhibitor but who've been tolerized, even if they've been tolerized for years, have been excluded from the trials. Uh, Why do you think that's been the case? Well, clearly what the effect of this, first of all, is to pick a lowest risk patients for inhibitors. I think it should be stated up front that none of us believes that inhibitors are not going to be an issue in the era of gene therapy. Um, And the question is, as we work through, you know, phase one through phase three trials in hemophilia gene therapy, the issue is that adverse events that can occur in inhibitors is the number one uh, complication of hemophilia treatment these days, whether it be protein therapy or whatever, could significantly confound the interpretation of the trial. Um, But balanced against that, we all recognize that the development of inhibitors is part of the natural history of hemophilia. Now, patients who have been heavily pretreated, um, so-called PTPs or previously treated patients, and have not developed an inhibitor, have declared themselves as low risk. So I, I think this is useful at this point of development of the therapies, but it should be taken as a major asterisk in terms of interpretation of the trials, because this is by definition a low risk population. Um, and that uh, sooner or later, as inhibitors start to come up, we will have a whole different situation on our hands. And we perhaps we'll discuss a little later about will the gene therapy itself also have a tolerizing effect? Also, because of the design of the clinical trials will potentially influence the labeling of the product. If all children and all patients with any history of inhibitor, never mind whether it's active or not, are excluded, then one should bear in mind that the clinical trials have only addressed the patients who in the exclusion criteria. Yeah, that would, that would be disappointing because, you know, already then you would imagine you've got 30 to 40% of your severes are probably going to be, you know, deemed ineligible because of historical inhibitor. Um, you wonder if there will be some maybe leeway for patients who just had low titer transient inhibitors. So maybe that reduces that number by a half, but you know, with most trials showing that, you know, in severe's 25 to 30% are going to have a significant inhibitor, um, that, that seems like a lot of patients to maybe perhaps unnecessarily exclude from these trials. As, as you mentioned, if, you, if you're thinking about them as PTPs, obviously that's referring to continued protein replacement therapy. Gene therapy with endogenous expression could be a completely different immunologic presentation um, than a IV infusion. So to that end, do you think it's at least conceivable that endogenously expressed 
you know, we're primarily talking about factor eight here, but do you think there's any evidence that endogenously expressed factor eight may actually be less immunogenic than the infused form? Yeah, I think there has been some preclinical evidence from animal models that that may well be the case for, uh, I believe it's more in the factor nine world than factor eight, but I think it's a reasonable hypothesis that it may be less immunogenic. Um, and the question is, if we think about the population we're looking at, the rarity of inhibitors in, in these patients is such that it's going to be a very long time before we find out whether it's increased or decreased um, immunogenicity compared to protein products. But another experiment down the line, so to speak, that we'll eventually get to will be the previously untreated patients, which is really a, a probably a better test of the product rather than the patient in a way. At least we've come to appreciate that from protein trials that the pup studies, we have a pretty good sense in a, let's say, manageable cohort size, what's an allowable number of inhibitors. So in terms of frequency of inhibitors, I think it's going to be a long time before we really have a, a good sense of being able to compare it to protein therapy. But I think in, in theory, we may see less immunogenicity, but it's really speculation at this, at this time. I guess at a minimum, we have to be able to address, you know, for most of the factor nine trials, if not all of them are going to use the Padua variant, which is the missense mutation. So uh, at least there needs to be some reassurance that that doesn't create some sort of neo-antigenicity in patients who are being transduced with that particular yeah. trans gene. For factor eight, you know, almost all the trials are using a fairly standard B-domain deleted uh, factor eight. Um, there may be some subtle modifications. One variable I think is at, is at least worth evaluating is the impact of codon optimization. Although that doesn't modify the amino acid sequence, there could be some subtle conformational changes to the molecule and whether those create some new antigenicity. So I think it's at least reasonable in these first wave of trials to uh, again, pay attention to including the, the lowest risk of uh, uh, inhibitor patients, uh, first of all, and whether the calculation, you know, the power calculation is there to determine whether there's any signs of neoantigenicity. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's not clear um, unless there was a real cluster of events, which we just haven't seen to this point. So, what do you think about the possibility, though, of including some patients who at least had historical inhibitors? Or, you know, what do we need to do about thinking about a trial that actually specifically enrolls inhibitor patients towards the idea of tolerizing them? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first cohort of patients who have a history of inhibitor, again, these are all going to be, for the most part, factor eight deficient, not nine deficient patients. And so, I can only give a personal bias that and remains to be proven by the evidence that I, I don't see those patients as being a particularly high risk with gene therapy of having a, a recurrence. Um, I think as work goes on also to look at the, you know, immunogenicity of capsids and, and so on, um, that that will become less and less of a problem. But I don't think that we should wait too long to go into these patients with a previous history of inhibitors, my personal feeling. If, if that wasn't an exclusion on the label, would you have any reticence about treating I, I, a patient with a commercial product? 
I really wouldn't at this point, personally speaking. Now, now of course, we're talking, I think, should be stated about patients who, let's say they had a transient inhibitor in childhood. Those patients, you may say, are even lower risk than someone who required immune tolerance to become tolerized. So maybe we're talking about different patients here. But I think what you have to hypothesize is there, there would be some either major change in immunogenicity of the product or some co-stimulatory effect on the immune system or some breakdown of endogenous tolerance or all three of those things to make the gene therapy a problem in those patients. And we've spent a lot of time over the years looking at at other immune co-stimulatory situations, be it vaccination, et cetera, that may cause a recurrence of inhibitors. I think the data is a little bit a little bit of a gray zone. We do believe that in a, a danger situation that there may be an innate immune response that increases the risk of inhibitors. Now, whether that's really in, induced by the capsid or the transgene, um, I don't think we have evidence of such at the moment. I don't know what you feel about that. Yeah, no, I, I don't think we have any evidence for that at this point, but um, it is something that's certainly been raised. I, I guess I have a profile of a patient that I probably would not offer gene therapy to, and that would be a patient who only was able to be tolerized with a bioengineered uh, factor eight molecule. So if I had a really difficult inhibitor patient who ended up being tolerized with, for example, FC fusion uh, factor eight, and you know he's continued on fairly aggressive prophylaxis to maintain his negative inhibitor. I would have some reservations about offering gene therapy to that patient for fear of losing the tolerance that he's been able to achieve. So, but that's you know th those are going to be sporadic patients that that fit that profile. I think if I had a patient who had a high titer inhibitor when they were a child, fully eradicated, has been on factory prophylaxis for years. He's now, you know, 18 plus. He hasn't had an inhibitor, practically speaking, for 15 years. I just don't see any rationale that he shouldn't at least be considered for gene therapy. Maybe they should be followed in a registry separately to collect that data. But I think I would have a very low fear for reactivation in that context. Yeah, the question is whether these data on these subsets of patients are going to come through clinical trials or just experiential um, exposure after the initial licensure of gene therapy. I suppose to some degree it'll depend on the what is in the label of eligibility uh, for these trials. Um, it's hard to imagine we're going to actually be able to do formal trials for each of these cohorts of patients. And I, I think that some of this is only going to come after licensure. Yeah. Now, you've probably seen the data in a uh, small number of dogs. I think there was about um, 10 or 11 dogs that were in that study where they came into gene therapy with an active inhibitor and then post-gene therapy. I think something like 10 out of the 11 dogs were able to achieve uh, tolerization through gene therapy. And it's sort of, uh, again, the hypothesis here is that there's a different mechanism of presentation of the immune system that has a tolerizing effect. So um, what would you have to know, uh, what would you have to see preclinically or 
would you be willing to enroll an active inhibitor patient in a gene therapy trial um, with the intent of using it for tolerization? I would, for sure. I think certainly until the advent of um, bispecific antibody, I think that the outcomes and the complications associated with a lifelong of high titer inhibitor that had not been eradicated um, changed the bar for the potential for benefit from gene therapy compared to a patient who never had an inhibitor and is well controlled on, on prophylaxis, for example. So I think that's one consideration. Um, to our knowledge, the presence of a, an antibody to factor eight and um, an inhibitor would not change that we know of the expression of the transgene in the liver. And so the continual exposure to endogenously generated factor eight would be something that would not be easy to achieve through protein therapy. Um, the 24 seven exposure that may be important for the immune tolerization. If anything, therefore, I would expect a more rapid induction of tolerance um, in that patient than they could expect through standard protein immune tolerization therapy. We have one sort of group of human experiments up until now, and that's a very limited number of patients who have had liver transplantation. Um, but don't forget that's also complicated by the presence of anti-rejection therapy, which is probably destroys the analogy in terms of the ability to tolerize. Nonetheless, some of those patients, including one we reported, did tolerize to um, their inhibitor through liver transplantation. Yeah, so it's, it's nice to have those human experiments uh, at least give some confidence that there's some rationale there. I think for sure those type of trials are, are going to have to be conducted as um, organized prospective trials, I think, to be able to prove that point. Um, yeah. Some sort of, uh, yeah, it'd be almost like a, a, another phase 2B trial, um, just proof of principle in a small number of patients. Um, but uh, I, I'm not aware of any of the sponsored programs at this point that have promoted going that direction. I think they're all focused on, you know, at least getting a commercialized product, getting some uh, real world clinical experience with gene therapy. And then we'll, we'll see if this will be opened up to inhibitor patients going forward. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.